on this episode of China Unscripted. The biggest threat facing the Chinese Communist Party comes from within, and now it has global reach. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang, and I'm Matt Ganesha. This episode is sponsored by Daily Peanut. There's a lot of news out there, and it can be a tough pill to swallow. And that's why you should check out Daily Peanut. It's just the right daily dose of news in equal parts humor and substance. Click the link below to sign up for Daily Peanut, and it's free. And joining us today to talk about something that could bring down the Chinese Communist Party under its own weight is Levi Browdy. You're the executive director of the Falun Dafa Information Center,、uh, it's, and that's a human rights organization dedicated to ending the persecution of Falun Gong in China. You got that. Got it right. Well, so since since you yourself are a Falun Gong practitioner, I assume that also means you are an old superstitious Chinese woman. That's bas- <laughs> that's basically that's basically right. That's the demographic.、Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, well. So this is interesting because I think when people imagine Falun Gong, their first thought is, "What's a Falun Gong? Who's that? Who's that? <laughs> What is that? A music store? Yeah. Or、uh, you know, they have an idea of that. You know." Often being elderly Chinese women. So, so what? What? How did you get involved in this? Yeah, that's a good question.、Um, so, we had a software company many years ago in the '90s, and who was we?、Uh, me and a bunch of friends. We had、okay. sort of this little startup software company here in New York, actually. And one of funded my funded be- by the CIA. <laughs> N- not quite yet. Okay,、we、haven't gotten there yet. All right.、Um, so, one of my best friends was from Beijing. Um, mm-hmm. And every year he'd go back and visit his parents. And one year he came back to the office, and he was. Nice guy, I love the guy, but he's a little bit gruff.、Mm-hmm. Um, he comes back to the office and he starts, you know, he's, he's, there's a lightness to him. He starts helping people around the office. He's sort of helping them with their work. And so, me and a few friends sort of gathered around his desk and said, "All right, man, what are you doing? What's going on?" He said,、ah, "I went back and I learned this thing called Falun Gong from my from my mom." And that's how we learned, and that and that's really how it was spread throughout China. Is people learn the practice、um, from their friends, from their family. And it just kind of went through word of mouth, and he taught us to practice. And you know, within a week, we had a small group of people in the software company that every morning we'd go out to the grass and do the meditation exercises and come in and get to work. So that's how we started. And、uh, just just for clarity, Falun Gong, Falun Dafa, it's the same thing.、Uh, Falun Dafa is the official name.、Uh, Falun Gong is more a colloquial. Way of, of 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 referring to it inside China. So if you hear those two names, it means the exact same. They're both a Buddhist-based spiritual practice that's that's sort of centered on the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. It was、uh, first made public in China in the 1990s. Okay,、uh, and so when did the CIA start funding your operation <laughs> to undermine China? Well, they're not returning of our emails, so we're, we, we're, no luck so far.、Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, they always. Skip out of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Now I know you have a very interesting story about, and I think this is actually very representative of kind of Falun Gong as a movement. You actually went to China to protest in Tiananmen Square, and as I understand, protests in Tiananmen Square don't always end well. They don't. They don't. We did not receive a warm welcome from the Beijing police. Uh huh. Well, t-、right. tell us that、yeah. story. I mean, that's it's so, incredible. Um, it was actually the, the backdrop of that is you know the when the persecution happened it was largely it was largely the decision of one man the head of the Communist Party at that time Jiang Zemin he was going to go after Falun Gong as a political move to sort of build up his own reputation he was the first leader of China that had come to power that didn't participate in the revolution he didn't have a lot of credibility and sort of he was sort of desperate to kind of build up his own、um, his own legacy and along comes Falun Gong and just sort of Essentially, steals his thunder. It's it's been it's it's been very popular around China in the '90s, and and everybody's talking about it. And he said, "Okay, we're going to have to crush this." So he decided to do this. But for the first year, I mean, a lot of people knew what Falun Gong was in China. It wasn't really catching on, especially outside of Beijing and the provinces. So what had happened is、uh, a group of people had set themselves on fire in Tiananmen Square, known as the self-immolation, and the state media there had. Bent that into, they'd sort of cast as like this religiously fueled suicide attempt. We later found out, of course, it was staged. These weren't even Falun Gong practitioners, but that didn't matter inside China. This became a huge propaganda event, and they used it to sort of 
change the hearts and minds of Chinese people. It's a huge lie, and it was really effective. I mean, people started really who had previously who known Falun Gong, known it to be good, known it to be this wholesome thing that came from the heartland of China. Suddenly they're like, this is weird. This is gross. Get away from me. There's a lot of hatred going around. But the whole thing was fake. Like no Falun Gong people actually set themselves on fire. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the first one who actually uncovered this was the Washington Post. I mean, they were the first ones to find out, oh, these people, first of all, that supposedly participate in this event, they're not even Falun Gong practitioners. And later on, it was discovered, oh, not only are they not practitioners, it looks like this whole thing was staged in terms of you know, there were cameras in the area. There was, there was all kinds of things that they pointed out that said, uh, this is probably made up event to do precisely what they did with it, which was paint Falun Gong as evil. So basically the CCP just burned Chinese citizens uh, and used it for propaganda. As gross as that sounds, it's exactly what it looks like what they did. If you are interested in more about that story, we did cover it on an episode of China Uncensored. I can put a link below. So... This event happened, and the propaganda surrounding it was having sort of a devastating effect on people around the country, because obviously that's a very grisly, disgusting story. Um, and so a group of us who, had, by this time, we had known, okay, the thing is staged. Um, there, we knew why they did it. We knew how bad of an effect it was. Um, we were going to go to Beijing and actually meet with, before we went to t protest in Tiananmen Square, we were going to meet with all the major journalists in Beijing and talk about this and give them the evidence we had. That was the real purpose of the story. You thought you were going to go talk to Chinese state-run media. No, sorry, sorry, the Western the Western press. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because a little bit of background there. It's very tricky to communicate with them over phone or email. There's a lot of, uh, there's it's, it's very insecure, and it puts people's lives in jeopardy if we just sort of get on the phone and, and there's, that's a whole other story to talk about in terms of how to safely and securely talk to Western media in Beijing without jeopardizing people who practice Falun Gong in China. So we were going to go there. We're going to fly to Beijing. We're going to meet with the Western press and give them the evidence and talk about what really happened with the cephalomalation, where some leads that they could, they could follow, which is what we did. Um, after that meeting with the Western press in Beijing, we said, okay, now we're going to take it to the square and make this public. And uh, myself and a, another uh, friend of mine who was there, we went on to Tiananmen Square. We raised a banner um, to protest. And we were immediately tackled, put into vans, and taken to an undisclosed location. What did your banner say? My banner said, first banner, I think, said just Falun Gong is good, Falun Dafa Hao, which is something that a lot of the, the Falun Gong practitioners in China, China who protest on Tiananmen Square that they would hold up. I think we had a second banner that talked about the self-immolation, that it was a lie. I think those are the two banners, if I remember correctly, it was a while ago that we, we had. So how do you go from, hey, this, this guy I work with, he's kind of a jerk. Hey, now he's a little less of a jerk. Hey, we're doing these exercises to let me go to Beijing and protest, because that's like, I mean, you're putting your that's life a hard online. Yeah, 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 I understand. And how do you go through that in just two years, right? Okay. So that's an excellent question. I think this is something that maybe people miss about Falun Gong, because when Falun Gong first started in China and became so popular, it was largely on health. I mean, people were like all kinds of stuff, from minor ailments to terminal diseases. I mean, it was... It was sweeping the country as a health If you're going to tonic. Tiananmen Square to protest, it's not about health exactly, anymore. Exactly. So that's how it started. But then as you get into Falun Gong a little bit more, you realize that there is a really meaningful spiritual component. Again, it's, it's Buddhist-based, um, but in terms of addressing kind of some big questions in life and, and the way it, the effect for me was just allowing me to become the person I always wanted to be. I, I don't know, that's the, only, that's the only way I can say it, is that it, it allowed me to not only make my body really healthy, but I was able to adopt principles that strengthened my integrity to be, as lack of a better word, a good person. Someone who I'd always struggled to be. You know, you see the good people and the heroes in movies, and you're like, oh, why can't I be that when the chips are down and, and things are really, really matter? That's what happened to me with Falun Gong. It's sort of given me the strength and the mental clarity and the integrity to sort of be a good person in every situation, by and large, which is something I'd struggled with. I think we all struggle with to some extent, and that had a profound effect on me. So that was one part of the, the answer to that question. There is another answer, part of this answer is that, okay, so Falun Gong touched me deeply, personally. 
then you see what's happening in China. And that really is the tipping point because you have a, a group of people that are trying to be essentially good Buddhist sort of meditators, just go about their lives, and they're being horribly persecuted and tortured all around the country. The level of that injustice sort of brought, sort of demanded a response that we can't let, we can't just do nothing. You can't, we've got to do everything we can to make some kind of a difference there with that level of horrific atrocities going on in China. So I think you put those two together, that's my story. And I think that's a lot of the story of, of, of the people around me is that you have something that touches deeply and then you have such a gross injustice happening in front of us. A lot of us are going to stand up and do something. You know, I, I remember in school learning about world history and like the early days of the uh, the Christian church mm. and how, you know, what Rome was doing to Christians was horrific. And I know I was, I always wondered like, why would a Roman citizen who's like has a normal life decide to start practicing Christianity and face all of that? Mm. And I guess like hearing about Falun Gong, it seems like it's a very, it's it's similar. It makes sense in a way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us either were practicing, he started in the West where it's nice and safe and free or in China before the persecution and this whole thing kind of glommed onto us. But yeah, I mean, I think there's there's some similarities there because again, you're talking about something that touches us personally deeply and and such a grave injustice that, that you know, that's going to spur action. And it certainly has over the last 20 years. I mean, the, the level of activity and, and what we've, as a community, have done to expose the CCP has been substantial. Well, and that is what I find so interesting about Falun Gong. Falun Gong seems to be treated by the Chinese Communist Party in a very unique way. Mm. Uh, obviously, the Communist Party cracks down on... Well, there's really no group that I can leave out of that. <laughs> they, they crack down on everyone. But... They view Falun Gong as such a unique threat, almost an existential threat to the Communist Party's existence. And I think you're touching a bit on why that is. Just because of the way Falun Gong practitioners in China and abroad are so active at exposing the Communist Party. That's right. Let me give you a couple of examples to, to elaborate on what you just said, because I think for your viewers, they might not know the extent of, of how Falun Gong is unique in that way. So in 19, just a couple of examples. In 1999, when Jen Zeman met President Bill Clinton, right? This is the last meeting of these two leaders before Jen Zeman left office and Bill Clinton left office. Um, it's at the APEC meeting. The most important top agenda item, what is it? Jen Zeman pulls out a whole bunch of uh, propaganda material on Falun Gong and hands it to Bill Clinton. That's his number one uh, objective. Wait, more important than getting into the World Trade Organization? More important than anything at wow. that point. At that point. Um, so to give propaganda to the U.S. president. Yeah, I mean, this was That's... in 1999, so things were moving along on the trade front. But still, a meeting between those two leaders, that became the most important thing. Two years later, Condoleezza Rice has just taken over national security advisor for President Bush. She's settling to her office. It's like day two, day three of her of her, her of her position. She she meets with the corresponding high level Chinese officials. They come into her office. You think they're going to talk about the Taiwan Strait and all these other Hong Kong and all these other the issues? Spy plane that was shot the down. The spy plane. They pull out of their briefcase a prepared statement on Falun Gong and proceed to read it for 20 minutes. She got so fed up, she had to kick him out of the office. Wow. Mayors, congressmen constantly get letters from, from uh, the Chinese consulate condemning Falun Gong, making sure they don't issue proclamations in support of Falun Gong. I had a, my father is a professor at a university in, in, here in America. His colleague, who happens to be Chinese but has lived here for 40 years, out of the blue, gets a letter from the consulate in L.A. We live in the Southwest, talking about Falun Gong and dangerous and don't talk to people. He has nothing to do with Falun Gong. He is the closest connection he has. Is he happens to be a colleague of my father, and I'm with the Falun Dafa Information Center. So this is the level. Oh, sorry, one other example. Um, a defector in Australia had had from the Chinese government had he had defected in Australia and he came and testified in Washington D.C. and he disclosed that every single diplomatic mission around the world has a department within the mission dedicated to suppressing and marginalizing Falun Gong in their country. So when we talk about does the Chinese Communist Party treat Falun Gong different or uniquely, this is what we're talking about. It is a number one priority for them, and this is the extent and the length they'll go to to suppress it around the world. 
So I just wanted to sort of, so people had a sense of what we're really talking I, about. I didn't know any of that, actually. <clears throat> so back to your question, why? Mm -hmm. What makes it different? Or why is this, why don't they treat Hong Kong or Taiwanese or, or the Uyghurs? Now, certainly- I mean, they treat the Uyghurs pretty badly. They treat all those people badly. Yeah. And, and, and they get pressure everywhere. You know, Taiwan gets pressure all over the place, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs. What's unique um, about Falun Gong as a threat is that I think one is the numbers. People forget that there were 70 to 100 million people practicing Falun Gong in 1999. Just a few years ago, we did an audit of the people who are actively doing peaceful civil disobedience in China. The number was 20 to 40 million actively wow. involved. You, you in, mean like now? It, now, inside China. And those are people who are actively doing civil disobedience type activity it's in the country. So, so that, that's, that's greater than the number of Uyghurs, Wait. Tibetans, and Hong Kong residents combined. So combined. is this civil disobedience related to Falun Gong specifically? This is what you're talking about? Very specific. It's Falun Gong people themselves doing civil disobedience activities specific to Falun Gong, primarily running massive amounts of underground print shops where they deliver VCDs or flyers for their in their neighborhoods or their nearby villages, telling them what's really going on because you're not going to get the real story in the CCP state-run media. Wow, that's amazing. They're still using VCDs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they still work. Um, but but, but hold, hold on a second. So, so there's a lot of people uh, I've heard say, oh, well, Falun Gong... You know, yeah, there are a lot of people in the 90s, 70 million, 100 million, but there's, ver there's very few now because you don't hear anything about it, right? But you're saying that Falun Gong, far from being gone, is actually, you said 20 to 25 million. 20 to 40. 20 to million. 40 million who are actively involved in this kind of um, anti-propaganda work. Exactly. And then on top of that, there might even be other people who just practice the exercises, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that... That blows my mind that there's still so many people in China who practice despite 20 years of like- Despite the, organ harvesting. <laughs> organ harvesting, being thrown in labor camps. Torture, uh, rape. Torture, uh, just, yeah. I mean, it's, and then also just the whole pressure to, uh, you know, people, uh, the, the Communist Party, t you know, just wrecks people's businesses and their livelihood, gets them fired from their jobs. Like you just, you can barely make a living once the Communist Party goes after you. And yet- that many people. 20 to 40 million. Wow. And it's, to some extent, it's not an accident. It was very much a propaganda move. I mean, if you go back and look at like Associated Press and New York Times articles from around April of 1999, they'll, they'll just repeat the, the government's figure. There's 70 million people practicing, right? Mm -hmm. Fast forward just a few months and the Chinese government spokesperson has now changed that number to 3 million or 1 million. Hmm. And unfortunately, without batting an eye, without asking any questions, the Associated Press, New York Times, all these media just sort of picked up that number. So suddenly, what was 70 to 100 million dropped to one or three in the press. And from there, they, they pushed that out for obvious reasons. They don't want people to understand that this is an enormous segment of Chinese society that they're going after. But they gave a precise figure. So I believed it. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk about like this. This story is incredible and you hardly ever hear about it in the media. I do want to talk about uh, sort of the media's response, the Western media's response to Falun Gong. But right now I want to get back to the topic of why the CCP views Falun Gong as such a particular threat. And like yeah. the, the fact that there's still 20 to 40 million people inside of China doing this. Well, I mean, doing the civil disobedience part. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think w when we interviewed Chen Wangchen, like a couple of years ago, and he was talking about how you can't know what people in China think about the Chinese Communist Party mm -hmm. from the internet because they just know everything's watched. This is the the blind lawyer yeah. who's who's in D.C. Yeah, so just like he was telling you that he like, had phone calls with people, right? Well, that he has basically connections with kind of the dissident network in China, mm -hmm. and that there's a lot more kind of discontent with the Chinese Communist Party than we commonly think of in the West because we just see these sanitized, you know, internet comments or whatever. Or the Han nationalism. Yeah. So I just wonder if like this civil disobedience thing is 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 the reason or part of the reason that this is this is a problem for the Chinese Communist Party. Because if you have people who are actively uh kind of organizing even on small scales, even in their local communities to uh, you know, counter the Communist Party's message, like that seems pretty dangerous for them. I think it's I think it's half of the answer is inside China and what they're doing. Um, so 
why inside China, again, 20 to 40 million people essentially printing out information and delivering it door to door, stuff that counters the state-run propaganda, not just about what they're doing to Falun Gong, that's primarily the topic, but I think what practitioners in China understood early on is that the CCP had such a monopoly on people's minds that they had to, if they're going to help them understand the atrocities that, that Falun Gong was facing in their own backyards, they first had to unlock that grip that the CCP had on them. And so the, what's in that material is not just the persecution of Falun Gong, it's also the real history of the Chinese Communist Party, which is something that no people in China going through the education system would have learned. And I think that's constitutes half of the answer to your question is that Falun Gong is now the leading voice inside China that's telling the true history of all the crimes the Chinese Communist Party has committed since they came to power in 1949, and that scares the bejesus out of them. That's really interesting because uh, this July 1st is the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, and there is a big push. They've created hotlines so people can report anyone who's making illegal comments about the history of the Chinese Communist right. Party. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I think that's that was that was huge because now suddenly uh, a populace of one point what is it four million five million billion at this point where they had been able to control the narrative now on every doorstep at some point over the course of a year or two or three years all those people are getting information about what the Chinese Communist Party really did when it came to power all the people it killed and the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and what really went down. All that stuff is being revealed. So that that's I think that's half of your answer. The other half to the answer is what Falun Gong has been doing internationally. If you look at the community in the West, there has been an enormous effort, almost entirely volunteer-based, but an enormous effort in the area of human rights organizations. Um, and this is something to, to note is that China, trying to get human rights reports, out of China and authenticated is extremely difficult. If you look at you know Amnesty International or these groups, they do a great job, but their hands are tied. It's not like they have an office in Beijing and they've got people to go out. They've got officially nobody inside China. Falun Gong and the network that we run, we have an enormous network in every single city, town, and village across China. So if someone gets tortured to death in a labor camp or someone's wife is taken away and, and, and put in prison, we know about it. The international community knows about it. We are now the network, the single greatest network to get information out of China. And that's why, for example, when the pandemic first went down, you saw an enormous spike in the number of Falun Gong practitioners being pulled off the streets and in detention. Why? Because they were the ones who were going to first get out what was really happening around Wuhan. The same thing happened with SARS. Over the Falun Gong network, we heard months before SARS broke on the international stage, we heard months before that in our sort of network about this mystery illness that was striking people. So Falun Gong has become a megaphone for all the dirty laundry that the, that the CCP is doing in China internationally. And, you know, on the, on the human rights front, but also organizing media companies, um, there's been even cultural institutions. There's been a real sort of renaissance of traditional Chinese culture, but also reporting on human rights within the Falun Gong community outside China. And that's the second half, I think, uh, in answer to your question, is they're scared of that. You know, Levi, this kind of reminds me, I was reading Ethan Gutman's book, The Slaughter, which is about organ harvesting in China, and he devotes a lot of it to talking about Falun Gong and the history of the Chinese Communist Party's, like, targeting of them. And one thing that was interesting that I had never heard before was uh, he had interviewed Hao Fengjing, who is this defector who used to work in the 610 office, which was like, like, you know, the, I mean, you know, the 610 office. The, but the China's Gestapo for Falun Gong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he talked about how China's hacking capabilities first came about because they were trying to target Falun Gong websites overseas. And so that seemed like, like they essentially started building their now massive international hacking operation to target Falun Gong back in like 2000 or 2001. Wow. And that just kind of blew my mind because it just seemed like, really? Like, is that that is the amount of effort they put into, you know, trying to undermine Falun Gong websites abroad? You know what I mean? So, so the reason that now tens of millions of Americans' personal information has been hacked by the Chinese Communist Party is because they developed those tools to get Falun Gong? That is what uh, this defector said. 
Yeah. And there's there's actually two parts of that is what he said is very true, that they were sort of developing their hacking chops on Falun Gong and then, you know, we see what they do with those nowadays. But the reverse is also true. The very uh, beginnings of the Great Firewall, which is the sort of the, the firewall that that shields uh, Chinese citizens from the free internet, was first developed as a way to make sure people couldn't access real information about Falun Gong. How do we know that? Well, Ethan Gutman actually is, has one of the good examples where you have Western companies who are pitching their services at very, to build various parts of this great firewall, and right inside their PowerPoints, they say, look, this is a great way to, and they name Falun Gong, to you know, block the internet, to monitor Falun Gong people. So it's actually being pitched by the, by the companies who know what the Chinese government's trying to do with the great firewall as they can get that job done. And so both of those, both the hacking capability and the firewall, were actually started to control Falun Gong. Well, so then that leads to a very, as an example of um, sort of this Falun Gong activism in China that ties into this particular thing, why don't you tell us the story about, uh, is it called the Chongqing incident? Or? Yeah, the, the, the Chongqing broadcasts. Um, so this was a, a remarkable story. There was a, a small group of friends in uh, Chongqing City, which is in northeast China, and they were, this is shortly after the self-immolation, and they were seeing all the propaganda going out, and they're seeing what's happening in their own town, their own community, where everybody's turning against Falun Gong. And they think, you know, what, how, could we, how could we possibly counter this? If, every, if people are getting this through their TVs 24-7, sometimes literally, on state-run airwaves, we can't compete with that. How do we actually reach these people? And so this small group of people who are, you know, not technical at all, came up with a way to tap into the state-run airwaves and broadcast their own programs across all of Chongqing City. They wanted to they, they wanted to hack Chinese state-run media. Sta yeah. In, in, if I were in their shoes, my first thoughts would be, how do I get out of China? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it was, it was a remarkable feat, both technically, but also in terms of extremely dangerous because- yeah. What happened is very uh, instructive is, or informative is immediately after the broadcast, first of all, it was a very interesting reaction. So the broadcast goes out, it lasts almost an hour, right? They, they hacked, they got in. They, they got in, it, they it. got in across, I think, eight different channels. So Chongqing City, more than a million people kind of thing, uh, saw these broadcasts. And the broadcast contains? The broadcast contained mainly two things. One is they said, oh, you know, Falun Gong is freely practiced all around the world. Here they are in Paris, the United States, because the story by the state-run media is that well, Falun Gong is evil and it's probably suppressed all around the world. So suddenly people get to see, oh, actually, China's the only place that persecutes Falun Gong. It's free to practice everywhere. So that was the first message. And the second part of that program was going into the very specific details about the self-immolation and mm. showing how the state-run media lied about it. So this is very threatening to the CCP. So the immediate reaction is interesting because there was a lot of people in Chongchun who thought, they didn't know the TV had been hacked. All they do is they see these programs and they think, oh, the persecution's over. There are people even went out into the streets and they're like celebrating, they're congratulating their Falun Gong neighbors. Hey, it's, it's done. We're good. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> that oh, lasted no. only for a few hours. Very quickly, and this came from the very top, Jun Zemin, who was in charge of the country at that time, ordered a massive police military presence in Chongchun. People were, were rounded up very violently. Uh, Amnesty International issued an urgent action just days after that when they saw what was going on. I mean, it was literally police sort of mobilization in the city. Um, all the immediate, the core team um, were, were rounded up um, and and tortured horrifically um, from this incident. Yeah. They're not still alive. I... They're not. No, no. All six of those, the core team um, eventually died. In, in, in custody in, inside China. And we, you know, what's, what's, there's several interesting, th there's several things to note about this story. And that is one, it started like broadcast in other Chinese cities. So other people then started to do this around the country. And I think perhaps more important, uh, equally important, I would say, is that um, Falun Gong community in the West who are technologically savvy from this incident gained the idea that, you know what, we should do the same thing for the internet. And they started to, to build what became the most useful and effective tools for people inside China to safely get out of the Great Firewall and be able to reach the free internet. All this sort of 
reverberated from this one event in Chongchun. And now you guys recently published uh, like a mini documentary on that called Airwaves. Yeah, we did. Um, there's an, uh, it's, a ten, it's very short. It's 10 minutes. Um, it's called actually Defiance in the Kingdom of Fake News. And it talks, it takes you through this whole story and then also shows you, shows you a little bit of the, of, of the effects on, I think there's a, there's a message here that might resonate with a lot of people because it, it goes to the heart of what's wrong with extreme forms of censorship and propaganda. And I think that's something that a lot of people around the world are facing greater levels of. And so um, that documentary not only covers this event, but it sort of, it, it talks about that larger issue. I think it's 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 quite interesting. I I recommend everybody take a look at it. Yeah, we'll put a link to uh, okay. we'll put a link to that in the description and and comments. Great below. Great. Great. I um, mean, Levi, I know that you can't. I mean, this is kind of like going back in time and being like, what if? But what kind of strikes me about all the things you're talking about in terms of Falun Gong civil disobedience, from you know doing things like trying to hack into the Changchun cable channels to uh, just, you know, doing these underground print shops to kind of this like massive uh, attempt in the West to like get this human rights information out of China that, you know, if the Chinese government, if the Chinese Communist Party had not uh, gone after Falun Gong in 1999, what would Falun Gong be in China? Like, do you think it would have become like this kind of massive challenge to the Chinese state? I don't think so. I mean, what's interesting, that was an interesting time in China in general. In, in the 90s, you mean? It, well, particularly the later 90s, because um, they were they had started opening up with trade and, and, and those things, but also there was an opening up of the systems, you know, the judicial system, for example, in terms of transparency and trying to bring some sort of civil ways in which to govern and, and uh, the country. So it was the whole country was kind of, I would say, going in the right direction a little bit. I mean, granted, they're starting from a very bad place, but going in the right direction. And, and this, what's the, the one of the unfortunate things about the persecution of Falun Gong, it was so systematic, is all those steps of progress and all those mechanisms were completely reversed because now the sole focus of the entire regime was to stamp out Falun Gong. So, for example, any... Um, advances they had made to bring transparency to the judicial system out the window. Now it be they went back to the party decides what the verdict is going to be before the trial is even held because all these Falun Gong people need to be thrown into prison and throw away the key. So all this sort of went into a, a complete reverse. Now, had that not happened, just looking at, at sort of the small steps that China was making, um, I think we'd be looking at a very different China I think it would be a place that perhaps Falun Gong would, would have, much like you see in Taiwan, where Falun Gong remains hugely popular, widely embraced by the government. Um, and you wouldn't, I think, one of the things that, that would, have, would have come to pass is you wouldn't have had such a dangerous actor on the world stage. Um, it really could have contributed, I think, to a much more sort of open, um, civil China as opposed to what we have now, and as opposed to the ramifications of having that actor on the world stage we have now. I mean, I've, I've heard the line from the Communist Party that Falun Gong uh, was trying to overthrow the Communist Party. So, you know, in the late 90s, when Falun Gong had 70 million or 100 million people practicing, right? Like, did they have an anti-Communist Party message? Like, what, like what was it like in that environment? Not at all, and I think the the important thing to note on that is looking at the timing of the state-run media talking points. All the way up through the late part of 1998, the Chinese government was saying the same thing, which is this practice is great because it's saving us a huge amounts of money on our healthcare, and it's making people healthy, and it's bringing balance and sort of harmony to our communities. Great, keep what you keep 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 doing what you guys are doing. It wasn't until John Zemin decided, okay, we're going to stamp out this group so I can cons consolidate my political power. Then the talking points changed. Now you have stuff like what you were just talking about. Oh, they were trying to take over the government. Oh, they're funded by the CIA. Oh, they come from aliens. I mean, whatever, all the stuff they came up with. Come from aliens? None of that, none of that was, in, was, in, was at play until after the persecution started. And that, I think that's the real indicator is that 
they just had to come up with something because how do you how do you formulate a cohesive story about persecuting a bunch of peaceful Buddhists? You got to make stuff up. Well, it is interesting because you know, as you mentioned, like the the, the core beliefs of Falun Gong are truth, compassion, and uh, tolerance, tolerance yeah. which in many ways is completely antithetical to communism. Marx's belief that like civilization is based on struggle. Mm -hmm. People have to fight. This is how things move forward. This is how society progresses. That doesn't really fit into uh, truth, compassion, and tolerance, particularly that tolerance yeah. thing. Lies, persecution, and labor camps or something. Parties no, no, no. They're about, they're about peace, Matt. Oh, yeah. yeah. Peace against well, global Well, hegemony. no. Specifically, I do remember that Jiang Zemin Maybe it wasn't Jiang Zemin, maybe somebody else in the party, but it was like in the it early was days Jung. of birth, yeah. it was Jiang. Specifically, was Jung. he said that the truth, well, you probably have it better than I do. It was something like the tr truth was compassion and tolerance that Falun Gong teaches has nothing to do with like the Marxist ideology or society we're trying to build. Yeah. That was essentially what he said. So that, that was at play. I mean, you know, there was both the numbers idea that, okay, there's more people practicing Falun Gong than are members of the Communist Party. Eh, a couple leaders in the Communist Party are nervous about that. And there's certainly this ideological thing where, okay, the Communist Party just spent decades trying to stamp out anything reminiscent of traditional Chinese culture so they can ram into the people's, down people's throats, communist ideology, right? They're trying to do that. And along comes Falun Gong. Not only is it spiritual and Buddhist in nature, but it has a traditional Chinese root. So it's very much heartland Chinese. Certainly, there are some in the leadership that said, eh, a little nervous about that. Um, but neither of those reasons really pushed it over the top to the point where, hey, we're going to persecute this. It was the power grab. It was Jones the power it. grab. That was really the main thing. And you can tell that's true because in the first few months when Jensen said, okay, we're going to stamp these guys out, there was an enormous power struggle, even at the Politburo level. You know, a lot of these people, they had, you know, even the Politburo, they'd, they'd read the Falun Gong books. They've had family members who practice. So there's enormous power struggle. So you're saying that there were Chinese Communist Party leadership people who had practiced Falun Gong? Or who had, had practiced or had family members practicing or certainly had opened the book and read through it and understood what Falun Gong was. And they're like, no, we're not, we're not doing this. And there was, from all the reports we got, there was a significant power struggle between Jiang Zemin and the Politburo members all throughout the summer of 1999 um, mm. for that very reason. Yeah. Well, leaders come and go, but at least there's always power struggle. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that it's because it seems like Falun Gong seems to be tied to so much of what's happening in China and by extension around the world. You talked about uh, how it, it, it created the hacking that's going on, the Great Firewall, uh, and, and really a lot of what's happening with the political fighting in China today, especially Xi Jinping's rise to power, all kind of ties to how uh, the faction tied to Jiang Zemin that got involved in this persecution is desperately trying to cover it up. That's actually really important for people to understand. I mean, it, it's when there's a so-called leadership change in China, not so much. You know, the, the people that came before have a faction, though that faction has a certain amount of power, and that power can be the dominant force in the government for years or maybe even decades afterwards. That's very true now, where you have Jun Zemin, who's been officially out of power for, what, 15 years, 16 years, something like that. He has a very powerful faction, and, and you know, deciphering exactly what's going on behind closed doors and CCP power struggles is always sort of a bit of a, a black art. But all indicators show that that faction remains very powerful and they are in a sort of a, uh, an enormous battle between Xi and perhaps even other camps within the, Chinese, within the Chinese government. And one of the main reasons would be Jiang Zemin doesn't want to be the one held to account for what's happened to Falun Gong over the last 21 years. I think it's amazing that Jiang Zemin is still alive. <laughs> well, I mean, I think one thing that occurred to me just like talking about this whole thing is that really in a way, like the Chinese Communist Party, or Jiang Zemin created his own nemesis, essentially, right? In That's like deep. In, the, in the traditional like sense of like, you have created your enemy because- This is like, like Greek mythology Yeah, almost. yeah. Like it's, it, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about that, right? Like what you were saying, Levi, about like how probably Falun Gong would, would just be like, you know, we'll just keep meditating over here or whatever. And none of this would have necessarily happened this way. Right. But in response to the to Jiang Zemin's persecution, Falun Gong practitioners in China started organizing and started in their effort to bring truth, ended up bringing 
information that was critical of the Chinese Communist Party, which then developed into anti-censorship materials, which then developed into this global, you know, like VPN software and things that are helping people get around firewalls and all that. In short, Falun Gong is the CCP's biggest trolls. And, you know... (laughs) Wow, I need to write that one down. Hold yeah. On. yeah, they hacked so, into the state-run <laughs> media and brought their their trolls. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting what you said, Shelley, because I think that that's exactly right. I mean, I remember going through this process myself. Is that th- there's actually something in Falun Gong that's highly non-political. There's a there's a it's part of the sort of the I guess the community is that especially in the '90s is that. This is very much a personal spiritual practice. We don't want anything to do with political power or the back and forth, the give and take of uh, political jockeying. And so there was actually a lot of hesitation inside the Falun Gong community. Even after the horrific torture abuses and, and human rights reports are coming out, there was a lot of soul searching. It's like, should we even say anything? And Like, should we even say anything? Well, should we step onto the world stage and make our voice heard? Because this is not what we do. I don't do Falun Gong so I can step on the stage and say something. I do Falun Gong because it makes me feel great and I, it brings a lot of peace to my life. And I'd like to just go back to my backyard and keep doing that. And yeah, so, you, you were practicing on the grass with your coworkers, exactly. not looking to go to Tiananmen Square. Not at all. And I think that's true with the entire community. So throughout the community, there was this sort of like hesitancy at the beginning to do much, you know, publicly because that's not what Falun Gong is about. But the atrocities, the, the the abuses became so horrific, and the propaganda became so um, misleading. We got to a point where morally you had to do something, and that's where all this activity came from. And coming back to your original question, that's why I think had Jensen not done this, absolutely, the Falun Gong community would be more than happy to just be meditators doing what they're doing. That's that's what it is about. That's what it still is. Any talk that we, any activity we do on the human rights front is simply in a response to what's happened to us. If the persecution ends tomorrow and justice is served, more than happy to go back to my backyard and that's it. You have a backyard? Uh, Small one, (laughs) small one. (laughs) I'm a New Yorker. Um, Well, so another interesting thing about Falun Gong is that the systems of persecution that they put in place to deal with Falun Gong, you see that being used against, well, particularly the Uyghurs, mm. especially organ harvesting, mm-hmm. but just the entire system of you know internet censorship and surveillance. I don't think we would have this whole talk of the social credit system if they hadn't essentially built that system with the help of Western companies to target Falun Gong, because that's a huge number of people inside of China that they're trying to keep an yeah. eye on. Um, Freedom House has done some work on this, and the, the idea that Falun Gong is sort of an incubator for 21st century persecution techniques, um, it really has been. And you see, as you mentioned, the organ harvesting, but even just if you look at some of the individual torture methods, I mean, as horrific as this sounds, there were some labor camps that became proficient in it, and they actually had those people travel around to China and train other labor camps on how to do it. And once they became really good at breaking, quote unquote, a Falun Gong practitioner, guess what? Now we can break a house Christian, a Uyghur. And so you saw a lot of these methods, whether it's torture, whether it's policing methods, whether it's judiciary methods, whether it's technological things, all this stuff kind of being tested and refined on Falun Gong so that they can unleash it on other groups. And you're seeing this happen across the board. So how do I get my master's degree in persecuting people? Yeah, that's that's an you have to go to China. Well, yes, thanks. Thank you for that, Matt. You know, sometimes his jokes are a little like torture. <laughs> I appreciate the compliment. Chris. Uh, oh, what you're saying is I'm getting better. You graduated with full honors. Oh, God. So. Oh. All right. So 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 let's let's change topics a little bit. So what what is happening with Falun Gong is is so it seems so critical to how. China has evolved over the over the past couple of years, past couple of years, over the past decades, the threat it became to the world, how it, it, it uh, persecutes other groups. It all kind of ties back to Falun Gong. And there are so many amazing stories about what uh, Falun Gong practitioners have done, like that you mentioned in, in Airwaves, uh, or no, it wasn't Airwaves, it was the Defiance, Defiance documentary. Defiance yeah. documentary about the, the Chongqing hackers. Uh, Chongqing. What, what did I say? Chongqing. You keep saying Chongqing. 
Chongchun. Chongchun. Chong- different Chongchun. different I thought it was, city. I've been thinking Chongqing this whole time. Okay. That explains no. it. Okay. <laughs> no, like, like Chongqing is like the Atlanta of China. Chongqing is Express. Chongqing is, is like the Detroit. Lai. Yeah. That's why you keep thinking yeah. Chongqing. That's why I think. Yeah. Boshi Lai is another story. Anyway, my question <laughs> is, this is, this is also fascinating, and yet I, you never hear about this in Western media. In fact, the way Falun Gong has been portrayed in Western media just seems almost non-existent. Bizarre. Bizarre. I yeah. guess that's a better word yeah. to say. It. So yeah. what, what can you tell us about that? Uh, the journey with the media has been an interesting one. Um, I think there's a couple things to note. And one is, at the beginning, things were actually not that bad. The Wall Street Journal, for example, won a Pulitzer Prize for covering Falun Gong throughout the 2000s. And, and uh, their journalist there was doing going through extraordinary lengths. I mean, James Bond type stuff in order to safely meet with Falun Gong practitioners and and get their stories and verify their stories. He I was mean, shooting people and sleeping with women? Well, aside from that part, or at least <laughs> yeah. he didn't tell us he was doing that. Um, but they were the first ones, that that series of reports were the first ones to come out and say, actually, you know what? Falun Gong people are being re- routinely tortured to death in Chinese prisons uh, across China. And he won a Pulitzer Prize for that. The Washington Post came out later in 2001, and they were the first ones to get sort of an official on record saying, oh, actually, torture is part of a three-pronged methodology that we are issuing state, you know, top down to deal with the Falun Gong problem. So there was some very good reporting early on. Then what happened is the CCP drew a line in the sand, the details of which are a little murky. But after that point, you got near silence until some of the crazy stuff you see more recently. But that what what exactly was that line in the sand? I think the story of the New York Times is is informative on this. So the New York Times, which is a paper, by the way, I hate to talk poorly about. Um, I come from a family where we're three generations of New York Times readers. But some of what's happened to the New York Times is very illustrative of what, what's happened to the media overall. In 2001, uh, the publisher of the New York Times flew to China and met personally with Jiang Zemin. Surprise, surprise. Two days later, the New York Times.com is no longer blocked in China. Another day or two later, one of the one or two of the key guys in the New York Times are now embarked on an effort to build a Chinese language New York Times. For years after that meeting, zero coverage on Falun Gong, even as some coverage was happening in some of the other papers. I mean, later that year, the Washington Post came up with that article that I mentioned. So reportage is happening. And all this time, the human rights groups every year in their annual reports are saying Falun Gong's being tortured, they're being put in prison, blah, blah, blah. So the information's there. The New York Times is completely silent. Even as recently as, I think it was three years ago, one of their journalists was testifying before the China Tribunal in London about the organ harvesting crimes. And what she reveals is that it's an open secret in China with the doctors about organ harvesting's happening, and she was going to do a whole story on it and expose it, and she was told by her higher-ups the New York Times, no, stop. So if we know that, and that's happening in the New York Times, well, what's happening to the Washington Post and all these other papers? And you put that side by side, by side with the idea that it's been silent, clearly something's going on. And that's been the real struggle with the Western media for most of the time. There's been... The whole the last two years has been a different different animal, which, which which you can talk about. But that silence has been has been very difficult for us, and trying to break through that. Well, I'm curious because the New York Times has done an excellent job covering a lot of the persecution of Uyghurs. So it's not like the New York Times has some policy where we don't say anything bad about China. Right. So what's the difference with Falun Gong? I mean, it really comes back to you: Why is Falun Gong different? Right. I mean, I think those are those are similar questions. I think the answer is very much the same is that Falun Gong is. I mean, I think you could say Falun Gong is the single largest whistleblower of the Chinese Communist Party on the international stage. And that's the difference. They're the ones that are not only going to expose what they might be doing in Xinjiang or some region or Hong Kong, but they're going to expose the fundamental nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the threat that that party poses internationally the true history of all the crimes that they've done. So in, this, in the minds of the CCP, Falun Gong is different. And it is, uh, it is on the other side of the red line. And you cannot go there or you'll be kicked out of China. All kinds of bad things could happen to you. So I, I think there is a difference. And it, and it comes from that. How do you think organ harvesting fits into this? Because, you know, when you mentioned like 
the New York Times radio silence on the organ harvesting thing, I when I read that reporter's testimony at the China Tribunal, I was kind of shocked because yeah. it feels yeah. like, okay, maybe you think Falun Gong is like a little weird or something like that, but like to the point where you don't think that it's worth looking into whether people are literally being killed uh, in this very gruesome, like state-sanctioned way to like profit off of their deaths. Like that's not like a story that's worth looking into. Yeah, but what if those people have slightly different beliefs than you? Then it maybe is a little... I mean, okay but like, ignore, you right? know, people have different, yeah, I, uh, Uyghurs have different beliefs, right? That's yeah. that's true. I think that's an excellent question, and it's important to follow through on what could possibly cause that. What would cause, in this case, <clears throat> uh, a seasoned journalist at the New York Times to be told not to pursue such a story that it clearly is a story? What are the forces at work there? I mean, again... We could guess. We have to look at sort of the data that we have. We have the data of that meeting. We have the data of what happened after that meeting. We have. Um, we also have to look at maybe the flip side of that is access. It's interesting that the New York Times often gets exclusive access to, for example, the CEO of Huawei, or their opinion page covers uh, one of the highest level officials over Hong Kong making the case for the national security law. Weird. They have some very interesting uh, op-eds. Yeah, it, it's very weird. So, you know, I think clearly it's wrong. The question is, why is it wrong? Why would an institution that is supposed to be one of the pillar of, of American journalism making these highly immoral decisions about what to cover and what not to cover? We know for a fact it's a problem, exactly what the forces at work and why why that's happening, it's we could only sort of glean from these bits and pieces. I'm thinking of all the uh, the, the coronavirus coverage that's like, hey, China's got the right idea on how to how to handle this. Free societies, they're the problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're kind of seeing this a little bit now with like the whole Uyghur genocide thing, too, where there are now people coming out of the woodwork going, you know, it's not really genocide. Yet. Oh, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's bad, but it's not genocide. Yeah. So I was just, especially I think organ harvesting is one of those things where, you know, it's like the genocide idea. Like if you are going to admit that the Chinese regime is committing genocide or if they're committing organ, yeah. Like how can you deal with that country? What does it, what does it then morally compel you to do? And people don't want to have to be in that position. Or it might cost, being moral might cost you some money. (laughs) Or maybe it's embarrassing to be the New York Times and have not, have kind of dismissed this story. Oh yeah. Yeah, Whoops. You know. It's almost like history is repeating itself. Well, the great thing about all this is like, even if, like, let's go under the assumption that the New York Times was doing some degree of self-censorship. It's not as if that has helped them in China. They just got uh, their their bureau essentially shut down. Journalists kicked out. It's not like they're really winning points with the Chinese Communist Party. And that seems to be a lesson, just from a layman's perspective on this, that seems to be a lesson that Western institutions fail to learn from again and again and again and again, is that they go in, they make compromises, moral compromises, financial compromises, thinking they're going to get something out of it. And and the CCP... It's because they don't don't realize like they're doing business with people committing genocide and organ harvesting. It's because they don't watch your show. If they were watch your show, none of this would have happened. You are my favorite guest. (laughs) Well, in a way, it means it's your fault. Oh, you, you are get my your, least favorite. You didn't guest. get your show out enough. If you if you made if all those people had watched your show, then none of this would have happened. Well, all right, let's talk about YouTube and Google and <laughs> support us on Patreon. <laughs> so, so definitely, a lot of media coverage about Falun Gong has been strangely quiet mm-hmm. over the years. Like over the years, yeah. Like I mean, that Chongqing story is incredible. Like that's that's something people should. That's that's super interesting, mm-hmm. but. Now it seems like there there's actually in the Western media, like I, I, I see a lot that Falun Gong gets labeled as like some kind of far right organization or like some kind of pro-Trump organization, which seems strange that like they're trying to lump tens of millions of people in China to American politics. But what what's going on there? What's the deal? Um, I think there's 
I think there's two things going on simultaneously. That's I need to point to that. out that sure. at this table, you are sitting on the far right. Oh, boy. You did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, but, but from the camera's perspective, he's actually on the far left. Oh. Uh, not better. <laughs> Ooh. All right. So uh, anyway, I'd really like to be there if you if you ask me. Center. But <laughs> no, Shelly and I we're the we're we're the middle path. We're the rock. Yeah, <laughs> middle path. Um, I think there's two forces at work, from what I can tell. Um, one, I'll give you an example of, is that there is CCP propaganda that is strangely being repeated verbatim in Western media, for whatever reason. For example. Um, just in last year, October of 2020, there was a piece on sort of the Epic Times and Falun Gong and Trump and all kinds of stuff in which they talk about Falun Gong beliefs, stating as fact all kinds of stuff which are not Falun Gong beliefs, including that we forbid interracial marriage. So this is interesting because among my Falun Gong friends and non-Falun Gong friends, there are probably more interracial marriages among the Falun Gong people. I myself am married to a woman of a different race. Demonstrably false. Or you're it? just not very good at practicing following. Well, <laughs> that might be. So it's demonstrably false. Where did this come from? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the CCP propaganda inside China, they don't talk about this because they really don't care about those issues in China. But if you look at the English language Chinese government websites that sort of vilify Falun Gong right at the top is we forbid interracial marriage, we're intolerant in this way, that way, the other thing. So this is clearly propaganda that's false and is specifically formulated for the West what is it doing stated as fact in a prominent Western media article? I don't have the answer to that question, but that's an important thing to note when we say, why is this strange coverage here? That's an element of that strange coverage. I think the second element is that, you know, you have to look at the Falun Gong community. You're talking about large, if you talk, you know, let's say in America or, or North America and Europe, it is predominantly first-generation Chinese usually highly educated. They probably came over here because they got into some top universities. So here we have a first-generation ethnic minority that is being called far-right and kind of lumping us in with the Proud Boys. That, that, that's Sounds always like a little strange. Sounds like white supremacists yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. That one was always a little bit strange. So why, why did that occur? I think that occurred because things got so tense with the Trump presidency that the camps became so sort of divisive that any kind of positive support for a Trump policy of the administration, like towards China, was immediately pushed off. They ignored everything else about the demographic of the group and what they may think, and they're immediately pushed off into a Trump camp, and everybody who hated the Trump administration would attack them. What you see with the Falun Gong community, again, these highly educated first-generation Chinese, is that they understand China better than almost everyone here in the West, including a lot of our policymakers. And for two decades, they've been saying, okay, the CCP is really evil. You guys don't get it. This is what they're going to do to you on the business front, on the, on, on the political front. This is what they're doing on the human rights front. You got to do something. You got to do something. And for three presidential administrations, essentially nothing was done. If only we'd listened. Yeah, it essentially was nothing done, again, because they didn't watch your show. So we got to talk about that. So I'll, I'll let it slide in the bush and uh, most of Obama administration since the show didn't exist. All right. All right. We'll let that go. But along comes the Trump administration. And at least coming out of the State Department and some of the foreign policy there, there was real action that in the Falun Gong community, we saw, oh, this is going to work. This is actually recognizing some of the evil things the CCP is doing. And actually, this is going to help there was a sense in the community that there is a policy out of this administration that is going to be effective at curtailing sort of the evil things that the CCP was doing in this country, but also suppressing some of the human rights abuses they were doing, and they approved of that. And somehow in this very divisive uh, political environment, people would hear that voice and go, uh, you're a Trump supporter. Get over there with the alt-right, you first-generation Chinese person. Um, it was a bizarre experience for us. I'll just say for us, it was sort of a very bizarre experience because most of our, our sort of experience here in America fighting for human rights, it was very much bipartisan. And to some extent, we were even getting more attention in some cases from liberals. So for suddenly, because of recognizing some of these policies were going to work to help some of the human rights stuff and other things that the CCP was doing, we got thrown into this far-right Trump camp 
was weird. That's essentially what's happened is you have a strange manifestation of CCP propaganda against Falun Gong tailored for the West, appearing in some Western media, and that is being coupled with this idea that because some of the Trump policies against China were looked on favorably among our community, that we must be some far right Trump group. I think it's not that part. Actually, the second part has happened to other Chinese dissidents, too. It's yeah. not just Falun Gong. That's, That's right. True. I remember reading this uh, article from Perry Link, who's like a very like seasoned, notable, like highly respected China watcher a couple months ago where he was kind of like, look, we have to take a serious look at why Chinese dissidents support Trump. And you can't just do this in like a paternalistic way where you're like, well, they don't really understand. You know, he's like, you have to understand like where they're coming from in terms of like the China policy and like understand like why they because like Chen Guangchen, he spoke at like the RNC convention this Mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. And then like that was like a big uh, like controversial thing because a lot of um, people who had supported him were like, I can't believe that Chen Guangchen would speak at the at the Republican National right. Convention. And, you know, um, a lot of what he was talking about was like standing up to the CCP. And like, it's it's interesting that like we kind of have this tendency to just want to put like U.S. domestic politics and like on top of everything, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. I wonder what those 20 to 40 million Falun Gong practitioners in China think about Trump. Probably they don't think about him at all. Yeah, it, it goes back to how the Chinese Communist Party is very good at manipulating divides in the United States when they create propaganda. It's almost like they have a hundred years of practice creating power struggles. <laughs> Happy birthday, CCP. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. Well, so then what's next for Falun Gong? What's next for Falun Gong? Well, I think inside China, things have not changed a whole lot in terms of what we see on the ground. Um, Again, these tens of millions of people continue every day to get up and take these leaflets and go out to far villages and towns and, and get the word out to people. And I think what people don't see, because it's not in the news, how could they? It's halfway around the world, is that is what I call the small miracle, the little miracles of China, because there are now pockets all around the country. You'll see this where you'll have a village where the party boss, who usually is the one who meets out all the terrible stuff to, to the people in his area, is just like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. Why? Because he's had these Falun Gong people come up and hand him leaflets, maybe leave it at his doorstep at night, or maybe something more direct where they just come in and talk to him again and again, week after week for years. And he gets to a point where he's like, I'm not going to throw Falun Gong people in jail anymore. You start to see this. This is happening in different parts of the country. Not to belittle some of the horrible human rights stuff that still goes on, but there are a lot of these little pockets. It is changing hearts and minds, and I think that is critical because I don't see a change coming anytime soon to the control the CCP has on the state-run media. So inside China, that's going to continue, and it is having an effect, and it will continue to have an effect for sure. I mean, the story is really cool. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was my question about, you know, the whole going around and like giving people like leaflets or think like, is it making a difference? And you're, you're, you're saying it actually is making a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, the people that had, had defected had talked a little bit about that too, is, is that, you know, it has an effect, you know, you get leaflets, you get, you talk to Falun Gong people and then you see what's happening, like with Hao Feng Jun. He just couldn't take it anymore. He's like, I'm not doing this. And he left. But you see, that story is happening all throughout China at pretty much every level. Wow. The, the idea that there's like this potentially radical change happening inside China that just outside of China, we just have no idea about. Nothing to see here. Nothing right. to see and, here. And also that the Western media are generally not covering it. Well, I'm thinking like fall the Soviet Union kind of stuff, where from the outside, it's just like the Soviet Union collapsed? When did, why? What? And, I didn't get the memo. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's this whole other layer to what's happening in China that most people are just oblivious to. Yeah. Because we never hear about Falun Gong. Well, thank you for joining us today, Levi. If somebody wanted to know more about Falun Dafa Information Center or Falun Gong or uh, Defiance, where should they go? Um, 
I'd send them to our, our main website, the Fallon Doffer Information Center website, which is falluninfo.net, F-A-L-U-N-I-N-F-O dot N-E-T. Um, there you're going to find both sort of the big picture of what's happening in China, some of these stories, and also you'll have links to some of the, some of the videos, some of the more interesting videos, particularly Defiance. Great. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to, great to see you guys. Well, we are, you know, kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, I, I think you are. Yeah, yeah, I think you are. Put it this way. I was a little nervous when I came down here. I mean, I've been watching your show for years. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be sitting next to Chris. You, you are, you're my favorite guest again. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. And this episode of China Unscripted has been sponsored by Daily Peanut. If you want more daily news, in addition, obviously, to our weekly hour-long podcast, check out Daily Peanut. It's a bunch of fast, timely news stories selected for you and available to read on your phone, tablet, or computer. Reading Daily Peanut is an easy way to filter out the noise and learn more about the world news that matters. Join more than 250,000 other readers. It's education and entertainment delivered right to your inbox every morning. And the best part is, it's free. So sign up for Daily Peanut now. Click the link in the description below. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>